1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number thirty in our series for twenty eighteen, and today's date is Friday, September the seventh. First, I talk to Bill Catelby, CEO of Actinogen a biotech conducting research into the impact of cortisol levels on Alzheimer's patients. The company is currently in stage 2 trials for a medication known as Examinin, which is showing some promise. Actinogen also has this ripper partnership with a Scottish gaming company called Mindmate, which creates memory games for people with dementia. And then I talked to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver, assessing the August profit reporting season. But first, let's talk to Bill Cotelby. Bill Cotelby, can you tell me about the research your company is doing on the cortisol levels in Alzheimer's patients?
0: Yes, hi, Leon. Um, So uh, the research we're undertaking was initiated many, many years ago at Edinburgh University, where they identified that uh, in an ageing population, if uh, one has a a raised cortisol level, cortisol is the stress hormone, And if it's raised, over time, it actually is associated with the development and the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Now, this was identified some time ago. The um, uh, issue was to try and decrease that cortisol. And Edinburgh developed a drug, uh, took many years, uh, that specifically inhibits the excess production of cortisol in the brain. And that was the drug we licensed some three and a half years ago um, in a a mid-stage of development. So it still needed quite a lot of animal testing and then uh, early human testing before we could initiate a formal study in Alzheimer's patients. And that we uh, initiated just over a year ago and are making great progress with that trial and hope to um finish enrollment of patients before the end of this year expect to finish before the end of this year with um results uh, due in the second half second quarter of uh, of twenty nineteen
2: so uh these are the trials for this drug is called examinem is that right
0: it's called Xanamim. the the drug is called Xanamim. Uh, and it specifically inhibits an enzyme that produces cortisol uh, in a number of areas in the body, but particularly in two areas of the brain that are that are uh, primarily impacted by Alzheimer's disease. And our hypothesis is that if we inhibit that enzyme, it'll bring down the cortisol level and hopefully uh, modify, slow down, perhaps even stop the development. Of Alzheimer's disease. We've got some early human data uh, from a pilot study done uh, a number of years ago and some much more recent animal data that certainly indicates that our technology and our hypothesis is correct. What we're doing now is testing uh, that hypothesis, that idea, on a, an Alzheimer's patient population to confirm that our thinking is correct if it is correct it will be an absolute game changer in the uh, treatment of alzheimer's
2: i could imagine so what further tests need to be done now between now and 2019
0: okay so um, inevitably in developing a drug there's a huge array of studies that need to be done the key one is obviously the one that we're undertaking now, which is the sort of fundamental proof of concept study uh, in Alzheimer's patients. That is the key study, uh, and that will be reading out um, in uh, between March and June uh, next year. Um, but additional to that, we need to do a number of, uh, of studies to round out the data package. Uh, that is needed for regulatory uh, authorities and uh, to ensure that we've got the full data set necessary to take our drug forward to um, ultimately to commercialization. Um, Now, these additional studies uh, obviously cost money and very pleasingly, we we, uh, just completed uh, a significant capital raise $16.5 million capital raise uh, just uh, a month ago um, that was cornerstoned by a a very significant specialist biotechnology um, uh, institutional investment fund out of the U.S. Uh, BVF um, uh, invested uh, significantly, so they cornerstoned the investment. And then along with uh, them, Australian uh, ethical, uh, and platinum, two very um, um, uh, well regarded investment uh, funds from Australia. So, altogether, around about $16.5 million, and that is needed to fund this additional research. In um, 10, 12 months' time, we will have obviously the results from our. Uh, phase two trial, our pivotal proof of concept trial. Uh, We will equally have results from a number of the studies we're initiating now so that um, in the uh, second quarter of of next year, calendar quarter of next year, we will have a very substantial, very compelling data set. And we hope that that data set and the lead up to the results for that uh, data set um, will attract an appropriate um, commercial partner, big pharma commercial partner, to help us um, with the final development stages of our drug and ultimately commercialization of the drug.
2: Now, with this commercialization process, and you, you bring in a big pharma partner on this, I mean, when do you expect it will actually be on the market?
0: Okay, so it's always always a, a difficult, um, um, you know, difficult to estimate. But on our, on our current thinking, we would think uh, around 2024. So, you know, around five five and a bit years from now, we we should get the drug to market. Now, that may seem like a, a long time from now, but it really reflects the length of time necessary, obviously, to finish off the trials we're currently doing, but then to initiate and finish. Um, the next phase of trials, which are the phase three uh, studies that are necessary, and then of course assimilate the whole data package, submit it to the regulatory authorities and get their approval. But on our current thinking, we would think 2024 is when uh, our drug would, we hope, be uh, commercially available.
2: That's extraordinary. And so when did this process start again?
0: (laughs) Well, it, it depends, you know, it depends how far back you go, because really the, the initial basic research, um, Edinburgh University was undertaking that in the early 90s, late 80s. So, you know, you can go way back uh, to their basic research before they were even thinking about um, developing a drug, um, uh, you know, before they were even, even contemplating uh, a therapy for Alzheimer's. They were doing basic research um, uh, in inhibiting this excess cortisol production. And uh, along the way from the, 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 the findings and the results of that early work, Edinburgh uh, began to, to go down a number of directions to see if there was a, uh, a therapeutic, a development opportunity uh, that, um, that uh, could be generated out of their research. And then, in about uh, the early uh, 2000s, um, they 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 began to think of Alzheimer's and cognitive deficiency as a potential direction to go. Um, undertook a pilot study in 2002 2003 uh, that really confirmed their thinking was going in the right direction. So basically, from about 2004 onwards, so. You know, we're talking 15 years ago. They then started the whole program of drug development that ultimately uh, ended up with the drug we have now, Xanaman. So, as you can see, you know, drug development is a long, uh, tortuous uh, process and costly process. But um, obviously, the you know the, the benefits to to patients and and to society. Were we to uh, prove that uh, our drug works are going to be enormous absolutely enormous
2: and and what it says to us is that if you are in the biotech game you 're going to need a lot a lot of patience
0: <laughs> you, well you 're going to need a lot of patience in both directions both uh, both uh, time and and uh, you know willing subjects who are prepared to. Um, you know, participate in clinical trials to prove the the thinking, prove the concept, and ultimately prove the value uh, and the worth of of the drugs that you bring to market. So yes, you're absolutely right. And and uh, unfortunately, a lot of money. Uh, you know, research doesn't come cheap.
2: No, and uh, tell us about your partnership with Scottish gaming company Mindmate.
0: Yes, yeah, so. So, I guess this speaks to then uh, you know the number of patients uh, we need for for the trial so research clinical research is a numbers game and and um, you know alzheimer's research is 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 exactly the same um you know if you if you take Australia for example um, in Australia currently there are about four hundred thousand alzheimer's disease patients sufferers um, of that probably about 200, 150 to 200,000 are in the mild Alzheimer's category, which is the the group of patients that we're trying to identify. So you'd think, well, gee, surely, surely we should be able to readily undertake these trials um, uh, with, with that number of patients around. But um, there are a huge number of criteria and filters that get built into a trial that do cut the vast majority of patients are, but even so, um, you know even if' if it 's it's say one in a hundred of those patients that is that is eligible it 's still a large pool. The difficulty that does happen with research though is um, research is undertaken at a fixed number of research centers for our study that 's twenty five research centers. Um, Deployed uh, around the world in in the US, um, in in Australia, the UK, and in the United States. Now, in those 25, at those 25 research sites, there is going to be a finite number of patients um, eligible for the trial, and uh, inevitably, in in time, the sites uh, exhaust their available patient pool and need to look to um, tools and mechanisms and and avenues to try and throw out a a, 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 a um, attract a, a population from their from their catchment area and so we use um, um, you know all sorts of tools like like advertising to patients and doctors um, Community seminars, patient and community, patient and uh, uh, community community seminars, uh, information evenings, um, social media. So use Facebook. Now, all of these together add something to the to the um, awareness of the trial. But um, a very interesting opportunity that came our way. That again, we're trialing as well. We're we're experimenting with it is um is Mindmate. Now Mindmate is a is an app that was developed um by a group in, in Scotland. Um, it's, uh, it's an app that um, is targeting primarily people, uh older people, memory problems, and potentially um even Alzheimer's sufferers. But but the older the older population with the the, the potential for uh, aging and cognitive decline uh, and pota- p- uh, potentially even alzheimer's disease and within the app um a number of you know lifestyle um um uh, healthy um information uh, exercise um uh, and uh, you know uh, brain brain gym um exercises and within that um is uh, is is captured a huge uh, data set that um, potentially can be exploited to identify uh, possible patients for the trial. So we spoke with them and they built in a an algorithm at the back end of their data set. Um, I must say an algorithm with with multiple layers of of obviously um, approval and endorsement by the individual app user that they were happy for ultimately for their data to be passed on to um, us as a as a or to our research sites to see if that was yet another um, um, catchment opportunity for potential patients now it is early days, but it actually uh, appears to have been quite um, Quite productive. We've we've had um, uh, many many names passed on to the research sites. Obviously, those are then filtered and filtered again and and further filtered. But um, a, a number of patients have been screened, and we hope soon that actually a number of patients will be enrolled from this process. But you know, as you can see, any any mechanism that we can employ. Um, and particularly technological mechanisms that we can employ to um, um, broaden the patient catchment for these trials is going to be um hopefully uh, beneficial to to patient enrollment and and this is um, this is the initiative that we 've now undertaken with with mind note over the last few months, and we look forward to it uh, producing uh, some uh, some good quality patients going forward
2: Well Bill Cotelby that sounds fascinating and very very important work and uh, it sounds like it can once it hits the market be quite lucrative for you and uh, thank you very much for your time No thank you, thank you very much indeed And now let's talk to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver Well Shane Oliver, the 2000 August reporting season is now history,
1: what's your take on it? Overall, it's been pretty solid, but of course, it's it's not exactly spectacular. We have seen profit growth around eight to nine percent, uh, which is a pretty good outcome given you know somewhat subdued growth in the economy overall. Um, a lot of that growth was driven by resources sector, where profits are up 20-25% on the back of still high commodity prices, particularly for bulk commodities, and of course um, the benefit of uh, Increases in production following the end of the mining boom. The um, rest of the market seen profit growth around 5%, which is a reasonable outcome. Um, I, I guess the really good news is the fact that about uh, almost 80% of companies have seen profits rise on a year ago. So the breadth of profit increases across companies has been very broad. And, of course, that's the best result since just before the GFC. So some pretty good numbers in there. And, of course, dividends still rising. Uh, on my count, about uh, 80 or about 86% of companies have either increased their dividends or maintained them. So companies obviously fairly confident about the future if they're doing that. Um, I guess the the downside though is that profit growth, in an underlying sense, um, that if that is if you strip out the resources, is down around 5%. So it's still fairly modest profit growth. Um, nowhere near the strength we're seeing in the US, where profit growth on the most recent numbers was around 28%. Of course, they had tax cuts, but if you could strip out that, uh, profits in the US are up somewhere around 17% or so. So, overall, pretty solid results um, suggesting the corporate sector is doing reasonably well. But um, they're not spectacular. They are enough to underpin further gains in the share market, but at a, at a, at a modest pace. Not uh, certainly not boom time conditions.
2: Well, my reading of it was it was a fair fairly even split of hits and misses on either side. Would that be right?
1: It uh, it was something like that. On my count, I get slightly more on the upside than the downside. Um, but again, the upside surprise was in line with the long term average. You know, again, nothing spectacular here. If we go back uh, several years ago, now you'd have to go back about four years ago, we were seeing uh, many more companies surprising on the upside than the downside. Um, so I, I guess in that sense, it's it's turned out OK, uh, which is, I guess, uh, supportive of the market. That's why our market continued to go up uh, through uh, or through most of the reporting season. Um, but, of course, it's not uh, it's not like the U.S. where you were seeing something like most recent reporting says something like 85 percent of companies surprising on the upside.
2: Well, uh, of course, the U.S. had the benefits of the tax cuts.
1: Of course, they did. The, the U.S. had the tax cuts that kicked in early this year. Uh, and that, of course, added somewhere or at least I'd say at least 10 percentage points to underlying earnings growth in the U.S. But, of course, the U.S. economy is also booming. You have very, very strong growth in the U.S., very strong consumer conditions, underlying demand in the U.S. is very solid uh, coming on the back of uh, pretty good cost controls over many years. And, of course, that's provided uh, a degree of leverage in earnings. Um, you know, Australia's doing OK, but nowhere near as strong as the U.S.
2: Uh, my reading of it, too, was uh, reading the reports rising costs seem to be back after years of cost cutting.
1: That's right. We had many years of cost cutting focused, I guess, on rounds of redundancies. Uh, but that seems to have petered out in recent times. I guess most companies had sort of cut as much as they could. Um, and this reporting says, and you have seen some companies report cost pressures. Now, mind you, those cost pressures mainly relate to companies that are reliant, heavily reliant on raw materials, uh, where obviously uh, steel prices, for example, have gone up. Some commodity prices have gone up, and that seems to be what's driving that. I don't get the impression that wages growth are taking off in a broad base sense, there may be pockets of that in some areas, obviously in the construction sector, uh, but not uh, not on a broad base. Um, way of looking at it, um, I guess the key is that companies, you know, had many years of cost cutting that probably went about as far as it could. Um, now, of course, uh, yeah, costs are starting to creep back back up again.
2: Right, right, right. And uh, the issue was, uh, I. What was interesting was the results of the banks and the developers. They seem to be reflecting well, – my reading of it was uh, slowing property markets. Would that be right?
1: That's right. The banks uh, have certainly slowed down, a bunch of factors there. But, uh, of course, the big one there is the uh, slowdown in the, in the credit cycle, and that, that's basically bank sales. Yeah, their sales growth is slowing down after many years of doing spectacularly well. And, of course, that's flowing through to weaker results for the banks, and their profits actually went backwards. In the uh, in the in the first half of the year, um, I guess the developers also to some degree affected by affected by the housing sector, and of course uh, there's probably more downside to come there. We've got a lot of construction activity still underway, a huge pipeline of work yet to be completed on the residential construction side that will start to hit the market in the uh, the next year or so, and at a time when property prices are already falling on the east coast or Sydney and Melbourne anyway. And so it's likely we're going to see more tough times ahead for developers and for banks on that front.
2: And so that doesn't bode well. And of course, the other issue, of course, is that um, uh, there's going to be increased regulatory scrutiny and that will hit the financials and the utilities, won't it?
1: It probably will. Uh, We have gone through an environment uh, recently where you've seen a lot of regulatory scrutiny on the banks, wealth providers, as a result of the Royal Commission. Um, we've already seen that the regulators, particularly APRA, uh, come down a bit tougher on the banks, uh, implementing much tougher lending standards. Uh, the banks have to pay more attention to who they lend to, you know, whether they've got the income they say, um, what their overall debt levels are and what their expenses are. So those sorts of things are still working through and point to um, uh, you know, potentially a, a further slowing in credit growth ahead, which obviously has impacts on the broader economy as that slowdown occurs. And, of course, the risk is that the banks overreact. You know, I guess by implication, some might conclude, well, that the banks were too lax in their lending standards from the rural, from what you hear at the Royal Commission, and the banks might decide, well, we'll, we'll now have to be a lot tougher um, if to some degree we're going to get blamed if something goes wrong. So that is a bit of a risk there, that banks uh, overreact and, and tighten up too much. And, of course, you're seeing more regulation in regards to utilities Obviously, on the back of very high energy prices, electricity prices, you know, feeling that uh, you know, that um, you know, the energy suppliers are playing a role in that and that regulation needs to be tighter. That was something that was a, a key aspect of the National Energy Guarantee. I, I, we don't quite know what's going to become of the National Ener- Energy Guarantee, but it does seem almost certain we will see tougher regulation of the utility companies.
2: And uh, that wouldn't bode well for the next set of uh, profit figures, would it, for the banks and the utilities?
1: Well, utilities in this profit reporting season did reasonably well. And, of course, uh, um, as we go through time, it's likely that they'll uh, they'll come into a tougher environment. So energy prices or electricity prices are starting to come back down again to some degree, and that will probably work against them, uh, utilities going from... doing doing reasonably well to perhaps seeing uh, their profits go backwards a little bit. So my feeling is that if you look forward to this financial year, so we've just got the results in for 2017, 2018, we're now in 2018, 2019, this financial year we'll see overall profit growth slow down to around the 5% level. Uh, So that will be a bit of a constraint uh, on the overall market. Still still okay, uh, 5% profit growth if that translates to five percent capital growth on top of dividends around four to five percent that's still a pretty good total return but uh, a little bit slower than it has been over the last 12 months
2: so you're saying that over the next 12 months over in the next uh, profit reporting season we're going to see uh slow growth again
1: yeah somewhat slower growth we'll we'll be coming into a somewhat slower period for profit growth um on the one hand the economy is still growing that's well and good uh but i i I don't think the economy is going to be quite as strong as the Reserve Bank and government are talking about. We've started off with a good first half of the year, um, but I think things will slow down a little bit from here as the housing market uh, downturn on the East Coast City of Melbourne anyway continues to impact, particularly on consumer spending. Um, We've also got the drought starting to impact things. Uh, still very low wages growth, all those things will act as a bit of a constraint on economic growth. We'll we'll be growing. We're not going to go into recession, as some people keep talking about. We'll be growing, but uh, I I suspect in aggregate terms, we'll slip back below the 3% level, um, and that'll probably translate to underlying profit growth of around 5% over this financial year.
2: Well, Shane Oliver, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank 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 you. So what's happening in the news
2: well, emerging markets are under pressure as South Africa entered a recession and Indonesia's rupiah joined currencies from Turkey to Argentina in tumbling downward to record lows, reinforcing concern the contagion risks are too big to ignore. Contagion risks from Argentina and Turkey are growing for other emerging markets and economies with weak fundamentals, such as those with current account deficits and high inflation rates. The Fed's rate increases and trade frictions means the underlying pressure on emerging currencies is for a further downward move. And Australian economic growth surprised to the upside in the June quarter, thanks largely to increased spending by households. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, real GDP grew by 0.9% in seasonally adjusted chain volume terms, leaving the increase on a year earlier at 3.4%. Markets have been expecting a quarterly increase of 0.7%, leaving the change on a year earlier at 2.8%. And, despite the drought, Australian manufacturing has rebounded, with the Australian Industry Group Australian Performance of Manufacturing Index climbing 4.7 points to 56.7 in August. Now, any figure above 50 shows conditions are improving, and the latest set of numbers shows faster growth across the manufacturing sector. Indeed, manufacturing growth is increasing at a faster rate than in July. At the same time, however, a Rabobank survey has found that farmer confidence levels have fallen to their lowest level since 2006. The latest Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey found that the overall Australian Rural Confidence Index had dropped significantly in the latest quarter, with more than half of those surveyed having a pessimistic view on the 12 months ahead. The Rabobank survey found 56% of farmers now expect conditions in the agricultural economy to deteriorate in the coming 12 months. That is significantly up from 35% with that expectation in the June quarter. Those expecting an improvement in conditions declined to 13% from 18% previously, while 25% expect similar conditions to last year, down from 41%. The survey found that 89% of farmers expect drought conditions to worsen, up from 75% last quarter. Weaker commodity prices, mainly in sugar, and rising input prices were cited by 11% and 7% respectively. And Australia's housing downturn is getting worse, with a more expensive end of the market in Melbourne and Sydney leading the declines. CoreLogic's monthly home price index shows a national capital city price fall of 0.4% in August with prices down 1.2% over the past three months and nearly 3% over the past year. Melbourne is now leading the declines, with a 2% fall over the past three months, although Sydney's 5.6% annual decline is still the worst over the past year. CoreLogic's analysts are not expecting an improvement in the market for sellers during the peak spring sales period, even more so after Westpac became the first major bank to lift interest rates out of cycle for owner-occupiers. And on a seasonally adjusted basis, ANZ Australian Job Advertisement Series eased 0.6% in August, partially retracing the 1.4% bounce recorded in the previous month. On an annual basis, growth fell to 5.1% in August versus 7.3% in July. And Australia's current account deficit widened to $13.5 billion in the second quarter, from a revised estimate of $11.7 billion in the first quarter. This equates to 2.9% of GDP, from 2.5% in the first quarter. And Australia's retail sales stalled in July, defying expectations for another modest monthly increase. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, retail turnover was unchanged after seasonal adjustments, undershooting market expectations for an increase of 0.3%. The surprise result followed a strong period of sales over the previous three months, including a 0.4% gain in June. This time round, household goods retailing was down 1.2% and there were also falls in clothing, footwear and personal accessory retailing that was down minus 2% and department stores that was down 1.9%. The weakness in sales of household and personal goods could reflect the impact of falling home prices in many parts of Australia, a trend that continued, with CoreLogic reporting that home values fell in five of Australia's eight capital cities and in regional areas during August. And the dollar has tumbled to a 20-month low, and there are several reasons why it may drop even further this week. The local currency started falling from last week's high of 73.5 US cents after Westpac, Suncor and Adelaide Bank increased their mortgage lending rates. Adding to the downward pressure was Canada and the US ending their negotiations last week without agreeing to a new trade deal. And the Australian dollar was last buying 71.9 US cents. And the Reserve Bank has extended its record hold of interest rates at the emergency low setting of 1.5% for the last 25 months. With home lenders such as Westpac and Suncor starting to raise interest rates independently of the RBA and economic data generally weaker over the month, there was never any doubt rates would be kept on hold. The market had priced in no chance for change and the odds of a hike had been continually pushed into the future. This year the ASX cash rate futures market has seen the chances of a full 25 basis point rate rise through to the end of 2019 slide from likely to almost non-existent. And a push for a Royal Commission into power prices is gathering momentum, with Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack backing the idea and the Prime Minister Scott Morrison saying he would look at a Royal Commission in the energy sector. This in effect sets up a battle with Labor on energy prices in the lead-up to the federal election. Mr. Morrison said big power companies were, in his words, as bad as the banks. I'm open to it. I'll look at it, Mr. Morrison told radio station 3AW. He added, however, that inquiry was not needed at this point. Mr. McCormack told Fairfax Media that he was open to looking at any option that would help drive down energy prices. The idea of an energy royal commission is significant because it was mooted by Liberal leadership contender Peter Dutton. It was rejected by the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. It also coincides with the Greens calling for a parliamentary commission of inquiry into excessive profiteering and the failure of deregulation and privatisation. Opposition leader Bill Shorten said power prices have been going up because of inaction by the government. An Australia's banking regulator is investigating misconduct by some superannuation funds based on details uncovered during hearings at the Financial Services Royal Commission. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority says... Serious questions of compliance were raised about certain trustees and directors of super funds and that some evidence ran counter to what the funds had explained to the regulator about problems with customer accounts. APRA also said it appears an important statement made by a fund to the regulator was untrue. APRA is reviewing this material to identify further steps to be taken. The regulator is taking another look at the Commonwealth Bank's colonial first state and IWOF, Australia's second largest wealth manager. APRA opened the possibility of legal action, saying the fact that no litigation had been launched doesn't mean there'll be no proceedings in the future. And Kogan.com founders Ruslan Kogan and David Schaefer just sold another $40 million of their shares. The company confirmed the sale of 6.25 million shares by entities associated with Kogan and Schaefer. The shares went to 20 investors, both local and international. Demand was high, with more than $100 million chasing the $40 million on sale. The company listed on the ASX in 2016 at $1.80. They closed this week at 7 dollars three. The founders' latest sales was at $6.41. In June, the two founders sold $42 million of shares in what the company described as a reluctant move due to personal financial commitments. The founding directors now both say they have no intention to sell any shares before the release of the 2019 financial year results. And Suncor says it will return $600 million to its investors after completing the $725 million sale of its Australian life insurance unit to Tal Daiichi Life. And Westpac will pay a $35 million civil penalty after admitting it had breached responsible lending obligations for home loans. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission had launched action over 10,500 loans that should not have automatically been approved. Westpac will also have the regulators' legal costs to settle the case. This is the largest civil penalty awarded under the National Credit Act. Consumer protections under the National Credit Act ensure that credit providers make reasonable inquiries about a borrower's financial situation. They also have to verify the information that they obtain and assess whether a loan contract will be unsuitable for the borrowers. Now, Westpac had used the Household Expenditure Measure, or HEM, a relatively low estimate of basic living expenses to calculate potential borrowers' living costs, instead of actually evaluating what the customers could afford by looking at the declared living expenses. Now that was in breach of the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. It also meant that customers were being approved for home loans they potentially could not afford to repay without financial hardship. ASIC said Westpac had failed to use a higher repayment at the end of the interest-only period when assessing a consumer's capacity to repay the loan. It gave the example where the assumed repayment using the incorrect methods was $2,758 per month for a loan of $500,000 at 5.24%, with a term of 30 years and a 10-year interest-only period, when actual repayment after the expiry of the interest-only period using the correct method was $3,366 per month. And that's it for this week. And next week, I've got a terrific interview with Jason Lee. He's a blockchain champion working for the NEM Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation set up to promote the blockchain technology. Now, NEM is an out-of-box, enterprise-grade blockchain platform. It's a plug-and-play solution that's scalable, secure, and easy to use for developers. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.